All right, I just invited my friend Dan to come up here. Will you guys greet Dan? Now, anytime you invite someone up, you're supposed to introduce them. And uh, you're supposed to say nice things. And I'm gonna do that. Uh, I love this guy. And uh, he and his wife, Jamie, and their kids have been a part of our family here and uh, just been just great members when they're able to be here. They, they also were gone quite a bit um, and we would forgive them for that, but we were always happy when they were here with us. But um, the reason Tamar and I wanted Dan uh, to share is because of who he is. And one thing about Dan is he is deeply in love with God and he loves to read the scripture into, for it to come alive to him. And what I also appreciate about him is no matter what he's going through or where he is, and he's been in some pretty amazing people, in front, in front of amazing people, he's been in some pretty terrible situations, he's been at times where he's on his knees crying out to God, where are you? I need you to come and intervene in my family's life. I need you to come and bring healing. But in it, his desperation was always running to God. Were there moments of, of question or doubt? I'm sure. But there was this faith of continuing to push on, and that's something each one of us need because we all face those moments. But to be able to put our anchor deep into who God is and what his word says, his word is the anchor. When Jesus had the accuser whispering to him, he used the word of God to anchor him. And that's what Dan has always done is he uses the word of God to anchor him. He always sends me a text message with a scripture that I didn't know even existed. And, uh, but it was an anchor to him and he finds truth in it. So will you now, and again, we always try to say this whenever we have someone come up and share is this is not something he does often. Have you ever spoken at church before? Not or, on purpose, no. Not on purpose, okay? <laughs> and this wasn't on purpose either. Um, but that we encourage him as he's speaking, that we don't just sit where we're not, we're not grading, we're, we're here and we're encouraging. We want to pull out the gold that is inside of him. We want to pull out the faith that is inside of him, that, that, that Satan doesn't sit there and, and whisper, see, what you're saying, God isn't speaking through you because they're falling asleep. They're bored out of their mind. They don't even understand what you're saying. So what we're going to do is we're going to practice some encouragement. We're going to practice some faith and we're going to pull it out of him, believing that God gave him something, not just for him to be up here. So we're like, wow, did you hear him? No, God gave him something to change you and I and that it would impact us. So we kind of did one, and then we kind of did a quarter greet, but can you guys real quick give him a full greeting and welcome Dan. <laughs> Sorry, one, one more thing. I know, this is, no. It's, uh, if you, we, uh, the ushers are gonna pass out Bibles. Um, we purposely are not putting scriptures up on the screen because we want to open the word of God ourselves and turn the pages or 
flick the screen. So if you need a Bible today, will you just raise your hand, leave it up until they get you the Bible so that we can all together turn in the Bible. So just leave your hands up and they'll get that to you. All right, Dan, it's all yours. Hey, I love uh, low expectations, so no thanks for that, Pete. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, when I was in high school, I ran track and field for a little while, and I was so nervous before the races started that sometimes I would sneak under the bleachers and puke, and then I'd come back out, and I'd run, and sometimes I would win. So that was a strategy that on occasion worked. An occasion didn't. I'm not going to do that today. I'm, I'm more mature. I'm not as nervous. But what I'm going to do is start with just a short prayer, and uh, and then we'll just uh, we'll dive in. And I hope we make Satan really mad. <laughs> Jesus, um, you are the gift, hmm. and you're the price. And it's just wonderful to be here together and to dig into your life and to receive it and to receive you. So. Uh, not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, guide us closer to you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, man, this is great. Uh, you know, at, I'm gonna, I, have a, I have a plan, but this is not bobsledding where you have to just stick to the track. So we're going to be a little bit all over the place. Um, I was thinking about Advent. You know, it means the coming. And, oh, there it is, right up there already. Um, he, uh, and he has come. And... Uh, I had a little bit of intro, but it seems kind of cheesy. I think everybody knows that during the holidays, everyone, like, there's an expectation to be cheery. I mean, you look at the twinkly lights, and you, like, smell the, you know, whatever the Christmas spells are, and you just feel like, oh, I should be happy. I should be full of joy, because we sing songs about that. But I think everybody knows, I won't belabor it, that's not always the case. Um, that's not always the case, and part of it is because some of these expectations are kind of ridiculous. That, you know, have you ever seen, like, a an advertisement with a Christmas tree and a huge pile of presents. Well, we know those are empty boxes. Like, deep down, if we think about it, we know those are empty boxes. Uh, but somewhere in us, we think, oh, my goodness, I hope, I hope my Christmas tree looks like that, but I don't think it will. So uh, those things steal our joy. So the reason for the season is a great little throwaway line. But let's come back and let's, let's encounter Jesus as he uh, demonstrated his life to us in the scriptures. And let's find joy no matter how many, no matter what the tree looks like, no matter what our plans are, or whether we have to work on Christmas or after Christmas or before Christmas. Uh, he has come. He is come now. And it's going to be a weird way to start, but I'm reading The Hobbit with my two older kids. And if, I'm not like super gung-ho on books like that, but it's pretty, we love it, we're loving it. And, of course, the villain in that story is this dragon called Smaug. And I'm not comparing Jesus to a dragon. Of course not. That would be backwards. But there's one sentence that I just read the other day. And the townspeople are running around because Smaug has come. Like, he is here. And what does that mean for them? You can't avoid him. You can run. You can hide. You can fight. But you've got to do something. You have to encounter the one who has come. And so this season we're celebrating, Jesus is coming. Oh man, what a wonderful person to encounter because he loves us without end. We've got to receive or reject him. We have a choice. That sounds like the end of the message, not the beginning. <laughs> um, but who is he? 
Uh, scripture tells us that Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. He's not, a, he's not like a, sh- a shrink-to-fit substitute. Hebrews says he's the exact representation of his nature. Like, we are dealing with a real thing. Deceptive little package right there. Deceptive delivery. There's a purpose for that. But he is the real thing. Of course, if we look back in the Old Testament, it's a little sobering what the presence of God means. So we know it's really him in the manger. It's not a substitute. It's not watered down for us. But in Psalms 97, it says the presence of God melts mountains as wax. Yikes. The earth is upheaved by your presence in Nahum, chapter 1. Yet, in a stable, he is accessible to all. And we'll go into that a little bit more later. But really, you know, at Easter time, we celebrate the res- at, the, at Jesus' death. One of the milestones of our faith, really, in our relationship with God is the tearing of the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of, right. Holy of Holies from everything else. There's no, there's, no, there's no comparison like that here at Jesus' birth, but something like that had to have happened here. Because he was near, he is near to all of us at that moment. And since then, he says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. It wasn't one, and I'm going to leave, and I'll see you when I get back. He is still here. Um, he's accessible. So if you think about Way back, rewind the clock to the Garden of Eden. As far back, we have to go that far back, thousands of years, to that moment, that brief period. Well, we don't know how long it was. It seemed like a brief period of time. The Bible doesn't get, dedicate a lot of time to that, those moments when God would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening in the garden. And since then, that was not possible. But now, it is because of Jesus coming for us. And Adam, uh, Adam said, Adam, when, when uh, you know, the fruit happened, we won't get into pointing fingers, we know what happened. Um, <laughs> after that happened, God came back to the garden for the walk with Adam, and he couldn't find him anywhere. Well, he knew where he was, obviously, but he, Adam was hiding. And so God said, hey, what's going on? And Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And that is the first time that fear is introduced to the human race. No one was ever afraid before that moment. And we learn that Adam's response to the separation from God was fear. That's overcome later. But he's also relatable. And Pastor Pete mentioned earlier, he wept with his friends, Mary and Martha, at the death of his friend Lazarus. And uh, in Hebrews, it says that we do not have a high priest that cannot empathize with our weaknesses. The double negative, not helpful for me, but we, he can empathize with our weaknesses. And he was vulnerable. I mean, we, he is God, but we know that, uh, well, we might read it in a little bit, when the Magi came, you know, and Herod set out to kill all the boys in Bethlehem, God directed Joseph to take his family away. So you get the sense that Jesus was in danger somehow. He is the exact representation of the invisible God, but also he was in danger. So raise your hand if you've ever been in danger or seen danger on TV even. <laughs> He's, he was fully God and fully man. I don't understand it, but that's what we know from the scriptures. And who is he? Who is he? There's a, one of my favorite Christmas songs, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, has a paraphrase of a line from Haggai chapter 2. 
Jesus is the dear desire of every nation. And uh, we've got the Global Impact Board back there. Just imagine a globe in your head. Spin it and put your finger anywhere. Deep down, Jesus is the dear desire of that place and that people. We have that in common. Now, he could have shown up just at 30, as in the, in the body of a 30-year-old, done his ministry for a few years, died on the cross. And I, as far as I know, I don't know why that wouldn't have worked. So there's a purpose to him being born in that manger. And I think we'll dig into that a little more soon. But I love, I'm going to read from Isaiah. This is not turning your Bible's time. This is just a short verse. So I won't make you do that. Sword drill. Um, Isaiah chapter 32. It's talking about just the suffering that's going on when when God's people rebelled against them and were put into exile. This desolation will continue until new life is poured out on us from heaven. Then the desert will become an orchard, and the orchard will be, will be a forest. So what's that new life? That new life arrived in the manger. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And I didn't mark these. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm going to grind through this along with you. Luke chapter 2 comes after Mark, roughly. Uh, there we have it. Uh, verse 8, and, and this is familiar. I know how many times have you read this, especially if you've grown up going to church. Uh, but I think it's good. I think it's worth reading again. So let's do it. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, bless you. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord, and an angel of the Lord, suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, Peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angel had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and let us see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as has had been told them. Man, I think uh, there's, a, there's a handful of references to shepherds in the Bible. And sometimes they're heroes, like David was the shepherd. He was forgotten about. Literally, his, his dad didn't bring him in when someone said, bring me all your kids. Because he was out in the field with the sheep. So... Um, uh, but one of the first references to shepherds is actually in Genesis, because they just get the feeling like the shepherds were not, especially if you compare them to the Magi, who we're gonna who we're gonna meet a little bit later and read about a little bit later, like they were not very high on the totem pole. They had a night the night shift for one, so that's not great. They were low on the shepherds like seniority list, and uh, it's probably cold. I don't know. This doesn't seem like a pleasant existence. And Joseph the first Joseph, going all the way back to Genesis, remember when his family is coming to Egypt and they're going to settle there? 
They wanted some privacy and they wanted some place, some space for their flocks of sheep. And so he said to them, tell the Egyptians that you're shepherds because they hate shepherds and they're going to want you far away. And so you're going to have your own space. And so the Bible doesn't go into a lot, but you just get this feeling that the shepherds are maybe a little bit desperate, maybe a little bit human, maybe a little bit like you and I at our lowest moments. They certainly had, I mean, in the, in the big contrast with them and Jesus, baby Jesus' other visitors, they didn't bring anything, you know? They did not come bearing gifts. So uh, I'm, I'm sure they would have if they had thought of it, or they could, maybe. But they show up with nothing, but they're so excited about it. Um, but shepherds just are not, like, if you're throwing a party, maybe you don't invite the shepherds. Maybe you leave them off. And, uh, but they're the first ones. Like the, and, and they don't just get, uh, they don't just stumble on Jesus. They get a grand invitation of the heavenly host. And I was thinking, the shepherds made it into the Bible. So they're important, right? But we get the same invitation. It's no less significant. God doesn't desire our presence any less than he desired the shepherds who he sent the angels for. <clears throat> and then and then, so I was thinking about the shepherds and then it made me think about the different people as Jesus grew into adulthood the people that he encountered in his ministry and so I started cheating and reading past the Christmas story and kind of making a list and I got I realized if I was going to do this through all four gospels I would run out of time I would not be up here with any notes and uh, it would be too long anyway but I started to read ahead because Jesus has come, but he has come for you. Yeah. And that's a generic word, you, it means all of you, it means the big group, but it actually means you specifically. Yeah. And if you look at the people he met, there's the whole range, every type of person you can imagine, Jesus encounters, he seeks out in his time here on earth. And I think if we think hard, we can find ourselves identifying with maybe one person or another, or somewhere mixture, somewhere on that spectrum of people from royalty to the untouchables, the unclean that Jesus came for. He, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus sees the dis distressed and dispirited people. I don't know if this is just a little gang of distressed and dispirited people that hang out together, or he just looks around and he sees human beings <laughs> in a broken world who are often distressed and is dispirited, and he has compassion on them. Have you ever felt distressed or dispirited? Maybe around the holidays even? He has compassion on you. He takes up our infirmities and he, our infirmities and he carries our sorrows in Isaiah 53. And uh, man, I was reading, uh, it, it, so I don't have a, we're not gonna read all this together. But we know the story of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, uh, are grieving the death of their brother who's also Jesus' friend. And for some reason, Jesus knew he was sick, but he didn't come back to Bethany uh, to visit Lazarus on his deathbed. Uh, but he sees them weeping. And the, and the Bible says he is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Even though he knows in a few moments, he knows the end of the story. He knows he's going to call Lazarus back to life in just a few moments, but still he knows the pain that Mary and Martha are feeling so deeply that it troubles him. So think about this, think about this for yourself. Whatever's going on that's bothering you, whatever's going on that's troubling you, 
One, it affirms that that's normal, that's life, and it's okay to feel that way, but also because we have Jesus who is not just our, our friend who's fully man, he's also fully God, there is hope that it will be resolved in a way that we can't imagine. That's greater than, I don't, that's greater than we can imagine. He understands sorrow. He knows he is with you in the pain. At the same time, he is working all things together for the good of you who love him. So he's come for the mistakes that we take, and he's come for the New Year's resolutions that we're going to make, and he's come for the ones that we're going to break as well. He's come for all those stages in our lives because he's know, he knows them and he lives. Uh, he didn't make New Year's resolutions, but he knows why we do. <laughs> he feels why we do. And looking through the scriptures, he came for the Father. He came for the Father who cried out, I believe, but help my unbelief. He came for his nearest followers who denied him in one frantic and fearful moment. He came for the father whose daughter is dying, who runs down to the seashore. We know him as Jairus, the synagogue official, who meets Jesus at the seashore and finally finds the person who can save his daughter, only to be interrupted. They're headed back to Jairus' house, and the woman with the chronic bleeding, suffering for years, interrupts him. And he's come for her, too. He's not limited. He doesn't make a choice between us. He doesn't weigh... He doesn't do the, the suffering Olympics and decide, well, you've had it worse, so I'm going to focus on you. He's come for the man who was ill for 38 years and lame and sat by the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, waiting for the angel to come down and stir the water. And apparently the angel did, but here he, this guy is sick. He can never get to the water in time. Do you ever feel like you're so close to the solution You know what needs to happen, but you just can't, for some reason, make it happen. He knows that, and he is your hope, and he is your solution. He comes for Zacchaeus. The thing I like about it, I see a little bit of Zacchaeus in myself. Zacchaeus finds a safe distance. Like, he really is curious about Jesus, who he is. I'm sure he's he's heard some of the prophecies about the Messiah, But he goes and he climbs up a tree on the edge of the road. He doesn't want to get that close. He's also short, so he can't see. But he doesn't want to get too close. Do you ever feel like that? Like, I'm really curious about this, but I'm going to hold something back. He will find you. He knows where you are. He knows what you're holding back. He doesn't judge Zacchaeus. Do you think he judges you? I don't think so. So somewhere in this huge assortment of people, I find myself, I think you'll find yourself too. But he knocks when it's inconvenient. Before we are ready, with preparations incomplete, we're not dressed appropriately maybe, not inappropriately, but you know, we're not dressed up. (laughs) Unclean, floor unswept, not really wanting to see anyone. Do you ever one of those days where the doorbell rings or something like that, or the phone rings, and you're like, I don't, I'm not in that mood. But Jesus is knocking at your door now. He is here. But wait, there's more. And let's go to Matthew chapter 2. Man, am I sure it's Matthew chapter 2? Well, we'll go there and we'll see what's there. Uh, It'll be good. All scripture is useful. Um, (laughs) I don't know if it's useful to me. Yes, it is. 
Matthew chapter 2. So here we're going to encounter the kings. And I'm going to, we're going to start in chapter, in verse 1, excuse me, and then we're going to skip a little bit about Herod. Uh, I don't even have anything to share with you about Herod. Uh, and yikes. And um, so now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now I read something just the other week that, so they came from the east, like towards Babylon. It's possible that they came from a place where the Jews had once been taken in exile. And so perhaps when they were there, uh, their scriptures and their, their prophecies and their faith, uh, you know, was absorbed a little bit. And so somewhere they left a scroll or something like that, and these three magi might have found it, and that is where they, how they knew to even look to, to notice the star, to look for the significance. And so um, let's skip ahead down to verse 9. After hearing the king, uh, Herod, they went on their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, when they saw the star, not even to the manger yet, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country another way. And I, I just can't help thinking about the contrast between the shepherds who showed up wearing nothing. They were not, this was not planned. They were at work, and suddenly they weren't at work. They were headed to a manger. You know, the shepherds actually probably fit in in the manger setting, in the stable setting, a lot more than the Magi did. And then the, king, the Magi, the kings, who came who knows how many miles, days and days, weeks and weeks, carrying treasure the whole way, and everyone in between. And so here's the part. He came for you. He is here for you. But he came for them as well. Now, who's them? There are a lot of characters in the Bible that we hopefully, hopefully we don't identify, or we probably choose not to identify with our, ourselves with too closely. He came for the cheating tax collectors, as well as all the people who paid the taxes, who they cheated. He came for those caught in adultery, and he came for those who were ready to cast the first stone too. He came for the unclean, the demoniacs, the epileptics, the paralytics, those with every sickness, every pain, every affliction, the unmentionables, the untouchables. No neighborhood was beneath him, and no alley was off limits. There was no border that caused him hesitation. He traveled outside Israel too. It was all Rome, I guess, but there was no flag or shirt or yard sign or bumper that made him pass over that house. And we love the story of the Good Samaritan. We read it to our kids in every kid's Bible. Uh, and of course, in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is he's demonstrating what it really means to follow the commandment to love your neighbor. And I think Pastor... Somebody talked about it up here recently. You know, the, the Samaritan is, or the, the, the guy is on, the, the, the Jewish guy is on his way traveling down the road, is it to Jericho, I think? And um, he's attacked, he's wounded, he's not going to make it without, like, on his own. Um, and yet, and so the Samaritan comes along and, and heals him, or doesn't heal him, excuse me. He cares for him, he sacrifices, gives sacrificially, stops everything he's doing to, to lay down his life for him, really. 
but uh, it's it's um, the Samaritans and the and the Jews, and so they kind of split off, and it was really like a, a faith, a, a difference of religion. The Samaritans only believed in like the the first five books of the Bible. Uh, they didn't they didn't hold to all the prophets, the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, and so they had their little place in Samaria, obviously to the north, but. Uh, there was a lot of antagonism, but it was really like Hatfields and McCoys. Uh, the, the, the Samaritans would actually harass Jewish travelers headed up to Galilee from Jerusalem. Who knows, maybe the guys who beat up the, the guy who were Samaritans. Uh, and then at one point, maybe on more than one occasion, they took human bones, the Samaritans did, and dumped them around the human temple be- to make it unclean. And so then the Jews would go out and burn down some Samaritan villages. Like, these were not just neighbors who would, like, put the trash can a little close to the other guy's mailbox. These guys were, like, there was some violence going on here. So who's your Samaritan? Jesus came for them, and there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> hmm. Trying to do some math in my head real quick and so but so what do we what he's here we encounter him uh what do we do with him we can't ignore him we receive him and in the bible i was trying to think of i grew up going going to church three to four times a week twice on sundays a lot of spiritual points accumulated somewhere um and so I'm familiar, I've always been familiar with the Bible in one way or another, but I was trying to think of the perspective of, of you know, the secular world of the Bible. And it's certainly this grand story, and it, and it is to us as well. There are heroes, and there are tragedies, and there's a wonderful ending. Uh, you know, it's this grand bit of literature in a way, too. Uh, it's a saga, and, and anything, an infinite, holy powerful God does is going to be a marvelous story. There's just no way around it. But at the heart of it, at the heart of it, it's just a love story. It's about a relationship with the God who made you and you. And in a way, no one else. For you, it's you too. It's you and Jesus. And remember when Adam hid because he was afraid we know, we know what happens uh, when Jesus grows up. He uh, healed that separation. And, uh, uh-oh, I'm going to find this. In Hebrews it says, he partook of flesh and blood that through death, so he became human, so that through death he might render him powerless who had the power of death and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And so that fear that Adam felt is overcome through the cross. And that separation that Adam suffered because of his own sin is overcome through the cross. Now I need to refine my place in my notes, excuse me. Hmm. In, uh, in 1 Peter, 
chapter 1, the Bible tells us, for you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. Now, have you ever felt like some silver and gold would solve most, if not all, of your problems? I don't, I don't think of them as corruptible things. <laughs> they might be corrupting things, but if you've got it, that's great. You were not redeemed with corruptible things. What a perspective. From the futile, futile ways of doing things inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Man, I was thinking about that. Um, that was the cost for us. That was the cost to repair the relationship between God and his beloved. And unlike gold or silver, where one pile of gold is the same value as another pile of gold, there is no other Jesus. There is no other perfect, spotless lamb. And it made me think, there was a movie a couple years ago based on a true story called All the Money in the World. And I don't know if you've seen it. It's about uh, the guy who at the time was the richest man in the world, Jean-Paul Getty. He was an oil mogul, I guess. And in 1973, his grandson was kidnapped, adult grandson was kidnapped in Italy. And at the time, Jean-Paul Getty was worth about $6 billion dollars. In those dollars, even, you know, that's a lot of money today. It's a lot of money anytime, I don't care. <laughs> and for five months, his grandson was held. The kidnappers knew who, he, who they had. That's, they had targeted Jean-Paul Getty III. And um, there's a lot of negotiations going on. And guess what? Gramps didn't want to pay. And so the kidnappers, sorry for this, the kidnappers sent Grandpa one of his grandson's ears for motivation, and after five months, Grandpa paid. He paid $2.2 million out of his $6 billion, which is way less than what the kidnappers were asking. The reason he gave $2.2 million because that was the most you could deduct on your taxes for paying ransom. <laughs> Aren't we glad? that our Heavenly Father is not as stingy as that old guy. Because the thing is, my, my wife and I, we love to watch Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> and the great thing about Antiques Roadshow is people bring out these things that they think are valuable or maybe they just think are interesting. And these experts look at him, and maybe you'll tell them a little bit of the story. But the most valuable things are the things that there's only one of. I mean, it is priceless. You can't go get another one, even if you had all the money in the world that you saved from not blowing it on your grandson. Even if you had all that money, you could not go find another one of these things. Jesus is the only begotten. God had a choice to make, but because he is love, there was no choice to make. He knew he would pay. Have you ever, man, I'm going to do this anyway. Uh, hopefully it's a reference that somebody will get. The kids will. Uh, have you ever read the corduroy books about the little stuffed teddy bear? 
who walks and stuff like that. I remember one time Corduroy has this moment of self-awareness, and he's like, I didn't know one of my buttons was missing. <laughs> when his new owner, this sweet little girl, is going to replace it. And um, imagine looking down your Corduroy, and you look down, and you see attached to you, because you're at the store, your price tag. What does it say? No amount of money. There are not enough blanks on there for all the zeros it would take. No amount of zeros. There's only one price to be paid for you, and he was willing to do it. God was willing to do it, and that is why Jesus is here. (sighs) Hmm. And so, hmm, this Christmas time, I I love Christmas because I love sugar. (laughs) Uh, But this Christmas, uh, there's a song. There's one of the one of the great "Oh Holy Night," which apparently is really difficult to sing. So don't. I'm not gonna. I mean, all songs are equally difficult for me to sing. But "Oh Holy Night," uh, the stars are brightly shining. one of the lines that I love this jumped out to me is he appeared, Jesus appeared, and the soul felt its worth. So I think we're missing out. This is not some sort of like self-esteem talk because this is driven by relationship. He appeared. This Christmas, I think we're missing out if we don't stop to feel the worth that Jesus places on our life and on Time, his, the relationship that we have with him. Hmm. There, there's a lot more we could, we could talk about, but I don't think we need to today. Come back next week. <laughs> this, Christ, this Christmas season, it's going to be busy and crazy probably, whether you're doing a lot, celebrating a lot, it just seems to be around, it's like contagious. If everybody else is bustling around, then you just feel this nervous restlessness, like I need to be moving more quickly too. And that, that brings to my mind that story of Jesus visiting Mary and Martha. And Martha, identified with her, is just feeling like she needs to stay busy and have everything perfect and pick up for the sake of picking up. I don't know what, exactly what she's doing. She's preparing a meal. And there in the other room, she can hear Jesus talking to her sister. And I bet that's making her so mad. It's grating on her. So finally she bursts in and she says, don't you care? I love it when people in the Bible say, don't you care? And in the boat, as it was sinking, the disciples like, Jesus, don't you care? What What a question to ask the one who came to die for us. But Jesus, Jesus says, Jesus says, there's, there's one thing that's important and it's what she's doing. So think about what you can exchange in terms of time for some time spent at Jesus' feet this Christmas. Because you will be rewarded infinitely. Whether you do not have a relationship with Jesus, whether you have a new, fresh relationship with Jesus, or whether you have a deep, rich relationship with Jesus, or none of the above. I love in Jesus' first miracle, he goes to the wedding at Cana, best wedding guest ever, and He turns the water into wine, and it says right after that, it says, and his disciples believed in him. So that's it. 
why do anything else? My disciples, they're locked in. But then so many times, time after time, the disciples that are astounded at whose presence they are in. In the boat, when Jesus saves them from drowning and he speaks and he calms the wind and the waves, what is their response? They're even more afraid of him than they were of the wind and the waves in the sinking boat. And say, who is this that the wind and the waves will obey him? So I know you may know Jesus, and I'm not saying you don't, but in, when we're talking about an infinite God, we can say that we know Jesus, and we can also say we don't know Jesus. So now when the trees are up, what better time to draw closer to him, to listen at his feet? And I would encourage you just to read through the scriptures again in the Gospels and see all those people that Jesus encountered. Oh, it seems like for every day, whatever you are going through, there is a person whom Jesus ministered to who just matches. And finally, I would just say, hmm, we sing so many songs and it's on the placards and things like that. Joy to the world. There are gifts. He brings us gifts. I, uh, years ago, before I was married, I, uh, uh, I got invited to go to Saudi Arabia with a handful of other people to talk to some people about some things. And we met, <laughs> and, and that's, that's not important. The important, the, we got to meet with some government officials. And so this is, you know, this is the Middle East. This is not far from Jesus's neighborhood. And every time we would go and meet with one of these senior officials, we would go and we would bring a gift. And it was like a, you know, a clock to go on your desk or something. It's not, these guys don't need the clock, right? But you'd sit at a, the, the, the chairs were arranged in a corner, and the senior officials would sit at either corner. And, uh, and, and one time I got to present the gift, and it was to the governor of the Riyadh province, who's now the king of Saudi Arabia, actually. But so I hand him this gift. It's like kind of ceremonial. And he gave me a gift. Now it wasn't a treasure. I don't even think I got to keep it. But. <laughs> He gave me a gift. Our king brings us gifts. And like Pastor Pete said, we've got to receive them. And the word that's used in the New Testament for receive, it's not like, it's not like Oliver Twist with his little cup full of soup, like, please, sir, I'd like some more. It's almost, it's almost violent. It's reaching out and taking. Receive the gift. So ask him, ask Jesus afresh for peace, to guard your heart and mind before your family arrives for the holidays. <laughs> ask, ask him for hope to anchor your soul as the hecticness builds up. And ask for his joy to be your strength when it just seems like too much. These are the gifts that your king brings you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.